Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. I want to welcome our kiddos to service this big church Sunday. Uh, glad that y'all are here this morning. I need everyone to do something with me as we get started, okay? I need everyone, kids included, I need you to take a deep breath in. I didn't tell you to stop. All right, breathe out. Now keep doing that for the rest of service. I think you will, I mean, cross our fingers, don't want this to be the service. Someone has a, a medical emergency. Breathing is one of the most important parts of life, right? It's a, like a fundamental building block to you and I continuing to be alive and to enjoying uh, the life around us. And for most of us, it's a, a natural thing, right? We breathe. We don't have to think about it. It's a good thing we don't have to think about it. If you're as forgetful as I am, right, this would be a bad thing if you constantly had to tell yourself, breathe in and breathe out. But there are times in life, at least in my own life, where I've found that it's been helpful to think about breathing or to do it on purpose. Even though I do it anyways, even though my body kind of forces me to breathe, it can sometimes be helpful to to think about it and practice it. If I'm nervous or anxious, it's often helpful for me to just close my eyes and think about my breath and to get it on a kind of regular rhythm. If I'm sprinting or running or busy and find myself out of breath, it's often helpful to think about my breathing and to breathe in and to breathe out. It's an important part of life. It regulates so much of who we are as human beings. And I think it's not different when it comes to our spiritual life. I think the spiritual life, our life with God, can be thought of in these terms, these terms of breathing, breathing in and breathing out. And so breathing in would be the time that we spend with God. This time in worship at church together. This is time in prayer at our houses. This is time reading the scriptures, talking with friends and family about God, about the Bible, about our faith. And then breathing out would be these times where we are sent out by God to go and do certain things in the world, to be certain types of people. Um, this would be our deep breath in worship service this morning. And then in just a little bit, when we conclude service, it will be our breath out when we're all sent out into the world. And what I want to look at this morning is I want to look at um, what Jesus has to say to us about this second aspect. Not breathing in, but this breathing out part of our Christian life. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up with me to the book of John chapter 20. John chapter 20. John 20, the passage will be in this morning, will end our random ad hoc sermon series at the end of the book of John throughout 2019. So if in your free time you're checking out our podcast and just keeping track of the things we preached about, which I know you do, stalkers, uh, you will notice throughout the year in 2019, um, after today, we have hit every passage after the resurrection, anytime we had kind of a big church Sunday or a week off or something like that. And so um, this is the last one we had left to look at. Um, One of the uh, most important, um, a a very significant passage here um, where we see things about breathing and breathing out. Um, So we'll pick it up together in verse 19. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, we're talking about Easter here. This is the day that Jesus was resurrected. This is the first Sunday evening, first Easter evening. The doors were being locked um, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad, or they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You have here John's version of the Great Commission. In all of the Gospels, there comes a time after the resurrection where Jesus comes to his followers and he gives them something to do. He gives them a purpose. And this purpose is passed down to all believers throughout history, the church. We are brought on to Jesus' mission. In a sense, we are kind of employed in the divine family business, if you will. God has, since creation, always been about pursuing, rescuing, developing, maturing, saving his creation. In Jesus, God has sent his son to pursue and save and rescue and redeem and heal and liberate his creation. And with the gift of the Spirit, you and I as Christians are brought into that mission. You and I are brought into that same purpose. And, and this, as Christians, should be kind of our overriding why for all the big questions we ask ourselves. You know, as we come to the end of a year, um, 2019, and, and come to the beginning of another year, um, I'm very goal-oriented. Not that I meet a lot of goals, but I like to think about them at least and, and kind of write them down. And around this time of the year, I'm always drawn to thinking about what all happened this past year. What was I able to accomplish? What was I not able to accomplish? What am I proud of? What am I not proud of? And then to look forward to the year ahead, what, what am I hoping to do? What do I need to do? What am I hoping happens? What am I hoping doesn't happen? And surrounding all of these goals and, and all the different purposes we have for our lives and the different things you're called to do and to be, the places where you're called to serve, Underwriting all of that for Christians should be this, this overarching mission, this drama that we're brought into, this breathing out. It's a very interesting scene that John paints for us as Jesus gives the disciples the Holy Spirit. This is not only John's version of the Great Commission, this is John's version of Pentecost, of the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit. He gives us a kind of different um, picture, if you will. And it's an interesting one. Jesus shows up in the middle of them. And perhaps it is just the case that when Jesus is front and center, his people receive peace and joy. The Spirit is present. And then the way he gives the Spirit to the disciples is very interesting to me. He, he breathes on them. I don't know if you've ever been breathed on, okay? I'm not a big fan. Usually that means you're a little bit too close for comfort. Jesus breathes on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. It's easy to overlook this passage. It's easy to overlook the commission Jesus gives to his disciples. It's easy to overlook the day of Pentecost, the Luke's version of, of the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit. We're trained as Christians, probably well-trained, to really focus on Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And when we think around Christmas time, why did Jesus come? These are two big aspects that answer that question, why did Jesus come? But if you were to read through the Gospel of John, and then you are reading through and you get to this scene, 
it's hard to miss that there's another thing that Jesus has come to do. There's another goal that's central to his ministry. There's something else he wanted to accomplish while he was on earth so many years ago before he went back to the Father. And that thing was to give a gift to his people. It was a big part of his mission. He talks about it throughout the Gospel of John. He promises it before it happens. He says, it'll be a good thing for you. Even though I'll be leaving, this is going to be better for you. Jesus in his place, wanted to leave a group of people, an embodied concrete presence in his place who would receive the Holy Spirit and be sent out to do what he had been doing. The Christian life involves breathing in, worshiping, spending time in contemplation and prayer, and it involves breathing out, being sent out to bear witness to the good news of Jesus joining Jesus on his mission. I want to look at two things from this passage that um, tell us a little bit more about this, this mission that we have been given. The key phrase here that we're, we get from Jesus is he tells the disciples and us, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now we've got to think through how did the Father send Jesus? What does that mean? As I've been sent, Jesus says, so I'm now sending you. We have to start with God, and then we can kind of understand how we play a role in this, how we fit into this. And we can, we can think through, okay, we, we know, and, and the Gospel of John repeatedly tells us, Jesus has been sent from God, out of God's great love for the world, to bring life to it, to take away its sins, to bring forgiveness and healing and peace. It's no surprise that Jesus tells them twice, peace be with you, here in this passage. The Spirit is associated with peace throughout the Scriptures. There's a passage in Ezekiel that talks about God's future gift of the Spirit. And Ezekiel says, I'll form a covenant when I give them the Spirit. And he calls it an everlasting covenant of peace. And so when Jesus says, peace be with you, and he repeats it to them, it probably works on two levels. One level, just relax, they're scared, they're locked, right? And then two, I'm bringing you something that the world has not had yet. I'm bringing you something that I just accomplished through my life and death and resurrection. I'm setting something up. I've got something still to do. I want you to be ready. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be in the right place. And so I'm bringing you my peace, my shalom. I'm bringing you this newly well-ordered world that you can be a part of, the kingdom of God. Peace be with you. Before Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and crucified, we get in John's gospel a few chapters of uh, teaching from him. Sometimes called the farewell discourse, chapters 14 through 17. And in those chapters, he promises his disciples a handful of things, and they almost all are fulfilled in chapters 20 and 21. Many of them fulfilled right here in this little passage. He tells them, I'm going to go away, you're going to grieve, but I'll come back and I will give you peace, my peace. And here you see Jesus come back to his disciples and give them his peace. He says, I'll go away and you'll be grieving, but I'm going to come back and I'll give you joy. And here you see as the disciples recognize Christ alive again, they rejoice and are glad. He said, I'm going to give you the gift of the Spirit. And the Spirit will remind you of taught you and he'll be your comforter and your advocate. 
He'll lead you forward faithfully into the future. And here we have the gift of the Spirit being given to the disciples. God has, for a very long time, been a God who's on mission. God has been a God who has a purpose. He has, throughout the Old Testament, we get these stories, right, of him pursuing people, of him drawing people close to himself, of him redeeming and saving and rescuing people in, in, in lost and hopeless situations. Then with Jesus, he sends his very own son, to go and to save and to redeem. And then Jesus here says, in the same way that I was sent, now I send you. And in a real way, the, the church, the disciples, you and I as followers of Christ, are a continued extension of the Christmas story. In the Christmas story, God blesses the world with his presence in a concrete and embodied way. And we call this the Incarnation. And there's a real sense in which you and I as Christians are the body of Christ continued on this earth. The hands and feet of Christ. In, in one way, kind of a continuation of the incarnation. God's still present and active in and among our world through his people filled with his spirit. Jesus talks about the unity that he has with the Father in the Gospel of John. In very beautiful and poetic terms, he says, I and the Father are one. And he says, and you will be united with me and we'll be one. And as he's giving these promises, he says the Spirit's going to do this work. One of the things that happens when you and I receive the Spirit as Christians is, is we're brought into God's family. The Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. The Spirit is the, the one who unites us with Christ. And united with Christ, we now share and have access to the same intimacy with the Father that Christ has. This is our breathing in. John's Gospel in chapter 15, he'll call it abiding. Jesus says, abide in me. Rest, spend time, grab your energy, get fueled through the Spirit united with the Father through Christ so that you can then be joined on the same mission. How did the Father send Jesus? As the Father sent me, so now I send you. Well, the Father sent him to proactively pursue people. What that will mean for you and I as the church is that we're, we won't be happy and satisfied with just kind of sitting amongst ourselves. We'll be outward facing. We'll want to go have a presence in the world. Where there's dark places, we'll want to poke our light in. Where there are people who are without hope or without love, we'll want to come bring them with our hands above our feet hope and love. Jesus came and he bore witness to who God was and what God was doing through his very character, through his very nature. If we are sent out like Christ was sent out, it means that you and I are called to be little Christ, little Christians. We're called to be Christ-like. It means whatever our breathing out looks like, whatever our sending looks like, it won't look different than Christ, which means we'll be bearing the fruit of the Spirit love and joy and patience and faithfulness. It means we'll be growing more and more into Christ-likeness, into the shape and mold of the image of the Son. It's important that Jesus shows them his hands and his side here. What it means, it means a lot of things. One of the things it means is that the risen Jesus is the same person as the crucified Jesus. The risen one is the crucified one. 
Sometimes Christians, we, we have a tendency, we, we'd like to just be thankful the crucifixion happened and then grab the resurrection and pretend like that's all there is from here on out. And pretend like Jesus doesn't still have these scars. But he does. We're, we're, we're led to believe that the resurrected Christ, who's still alive and resurrected today, is still bearing these scars. In fact, Christ at God's right hand, if, if we're to believe the scriptures, is still presenting to God evidence of his love for us of the act of forgiveness he's performed on our behalf. Before God, right now, at Christ's side, in his hands are the marks of the crucifixion. Because there is no resurrection without crucifixion. And just because resurrection happens doesn't mean you can erase crucifixion. And we can never imagine as Christians that our whole life is going to be resurrection. Jesus tells his disciples as much. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. Paul will say to be in Christ is to be crucified with him. We suffer with Christ. So to be sent out as Christ was sent out is probably going to involve suffering, sacrifice. Not just suffering for suffering's sake or sacrifice for sacrifice's sake, but for others' sake. It's going to involve self-sacrificial love, the outpouring of love for other people. Whatever shape or form our ministry looks, our breathing out looks like. It's, it's going to look like Christ. It's going to be Christ-like. And we might, trying to stay true a little bit to the spirit of what Jesus gives us here, kind of riff off perhaps another famous passage from John's Gospel. If you would indulge me a little bit. We ask, how did God send Jesus? And, and I think many of us might be reminded of one of the more famous parts of John's gospel in chapter 3, we're told, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. What if we, what if we took this very seriously? And what if we filled in, in that same passage, that same frame of thought, some extensions of Christ? What if we imagined or, or or thought that perhaps one day someone could think a thought like this. For God so loved the world that he sent Vanessa. Or they sent Trey, or Caleb, or Doc. For God so loved the world that he sent Jason and Woby, so that whoever might believe in the name of Christ and have faith would have eternal life and would never perish. I'm not trying to get us to replace Jesus. Jesus is still there and he's, he's still in the forefront. He, he should always be standing in the middle of us. But if we truly are sent as Christ was sent, then I think perhaps a good goal to aim for would be for someone to maybe say, thank God that he sent that person. Thank God that Jesus gave his spirit to that person and said, go get those people. What proof of his love for us? That there are not only individuals sent out on mission, but there's communities. This is what a church should be. Not a building, but a community of people who bears witness to God's good news, who enacts it in concrete, embodied ways, where the world around feels blessed because we exist. Just as the Father sent me, so now I am sending you. Jesus, though, he knows that this task is probably too much for us. 
I mean, this is a tall task to join in God's mission, to be brought into this, this narrative, this, this drama. And so he, he doesn't leave us unprepared. He gives us a gift. And that gift is his very own spirit, the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathes onto the disciples and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You might translate this, welcome the Holy Spirit. And it's very interesting. This scene kind of echoes two very famous Old Testament passages. The first one is from Genesis. If you remember the Genesis creation story, in chapter 2, when, when God makes Adam and Eve, remember what he makes them out of? The dirt on the ground, the dust, and he forms them together. And so you've got this kind of clay thing there, and it's maybe got some bones and some skin and stuff, but it's still moving or doing much. And do you remember how God kind of lit it up and kind of brought life into it? What did he do? He breathed into it. He breathed into these human beings, and they had life. They were created. As Jesus breathes onto his disciples and they receive the Spirit, this is a sign that more creation is happening. Or if you would, new creation is happening among Jesus' people, his followers. There's another passage that's most likely echoing that John is probably thinking about as he, he paints this scene for us. It comes from the book of Ezekiel. And it's really the only place in the Bible where you have the terms breath and spirit so closely associated with one another. In Ezekiel um, 36 and 37, the, the prophet sees a vision. It's a valley of dry bones. It's just this mass grave site, right? And he sees all these bones, and they're dead, and they're dry. And he's like, how could these ever come to life again? And God says, well, I can show you. God says, I'll put my breath in them. I'll pour out my spirit onto them. And they'll come alive again. I'll make this new promise with them. I'll transform them from the inside out. When Jesus breathes on his disciples, he is in real time, in real life, on this world and earth, doing what God had promised to do in Ezekiel. Giving people a new birth, a new life giving them a transformed heart, writing the law on the inside of them so that they might be prepared to do what he has commissioned them to do. There is a, uh, a section in John's gospel later on where John says, this is not all that Jesus did and said. And he goes on to say, look, if we wrote down everything Jesus did, the whole world wouldn't have enough space for all the books that would be written. Now, so studying this passage weeks, I, I came across a, a theologian who gave a new way of thinking about that passage. I'd never thought of it before, but he said, if we, if we take this very seriously, that, that in some real way the church is extending Christ's mission on earth, empowered by the Spirit, then maybe we might be in a place to read that part of John and go, maybe he's not talking in hyperbole. Because if you think about it, it, it really is hard to imagine, no matter how detailed you got, that 30 years of life or 33 years of life, you could write a, every minute scene of his life and fill up every like, inch of space that exists in the world. Are we talking about the earth, the universe? I think it's expanding infinitely. I don't know. I think as soon as you write it, there's more space to put another book there. Seems like John is, is talking hyperbole, right? A, a figure of speech. But what if... John is hinting towards the fact that there's going to be so many thousands and millions of big and small acts done by Jesus' disciples 
that the works of Christ, both him personally and through his people, will actually be unending. You couldn't, you couldn't keep up with them all. There's no single source to wipe these all out because all over the place and all over the world at all times are his people empowered by the Spirit doing the works of Christ in the same manner as he's been called as he did. Welcome the Spirit, he says. Receive the Spirit. Now, it's important to, to note that in this scene, there's nothing the disciples have to do to receive the Spirit, right? I mean, this is sheer gift. It's sheer grace. Just like you and I, there's nothing we can do to earn the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is something God decides to give out of his love for us. He, Jesus doesn't ask their permission before he breathes on them. You might think perhaps that's a little rude of him, but I'm sure when they figured out what was happening, they were very thankful. It's sheer gifts, and yet still the command goes out to receive the Spirit, welcome the Spirit. I think there's surely still a sense here where you and I as God's people are still called to, to adopt this posture of welcoming to the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's difficult. The Holy Spirit's not talked a lot about in churches and in sermons, save for one kind of slice of Christianity that really focuses and majors on the Holy Spirit. And so it can be kind of a confusing part of understanding our faith for many people. It can be kind of an undefined, kind of vague part of God's identity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In John's Gospel, the Spirit is the one who brings to mind all truth. He's the one who points us to Christ. He's the one who comforts us. He advocates on our behalf. In the rest of Scripture, we're told that the Holy Spirit's the one who brings God's presence close to us. Like I said, he unites us with Christ, and in Christ, we are united with the Father. The Spirit is the one, we're told in Scripture, gives us the gifts that we'll need to go out and accomplish these things. And yet, for many of us, myself included, the Spirit can be tricky. I don't always know what it means to welcome the Spirit. Can anyone relate to that? You don't always know, is this the voice of the Spirit or not? Is this where the Spirit is, is pushing me to go or not? Is, is this what the Spirit is prompting me to do or not? To welcome the Holy Spirit is going to take a lifetime of practice. Because guess what? This is a new family that we are involved in now, God's family. It's a new way of communicating through prayer and scripture and community. Not the way of communicating that we're used to or in our, our biological family. This is a new set of assumptions, a new set of goals. All of the little things that we learned as children growing up, we now have to relearn in God's family. What do these things mean? How should we respond? And it takes practice and discernment. If you sometimes feel like it's hard to really tell what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life, the good news is you're not alone. And perhaps this is one of the problems is we often try to do this alone. I think the Spirit would prefer to actually work in community. I think the Spirit often speaks to me through other people. Alive and dead. The saints of old who have left their thoughts and reflections and meditations. And so it takes practice. It takes a consistent posture of welcoming. 
to say, I know I'm not perfect at this, and I know I'm going to strike out a couple times, but I want to hear, and I want to respond, and I want to be prompted. And so I'm going to learn, I'm going to refine, and I'm going to adjust that more and more and more in my life, I might be able to discern what the Spirit's saying, where the Spirit is going, how the Spirit is prompting me to go, and in doing so, I might be more faithful. We're told uh, that what the disciples are going to be able to do with the Spirit empowered by Jesus sent out on mission. In this last verse here, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's a very interesting verse. A very difficult verse to really kind of understand. What exactly is he meaning here? On surface level, it sounds pretty audacious. Different Christians have had different opinions on what this means exactly. It is probably likely that we can assume that Jesus doesn't mean that he just gives us the keys to forgiveness and complete control over this car and is like, good luck doing whatever you'd like to do with it. No, forgiveness is in John's gospel and through the scriptures, always God's. It's Jesus who comes to take away the sins of the world. It's Jesus who offers forgiveness. In fact, even in this phrase, if we look very closely, the second clause of both of these clauses in the sentence are passive. So if you forgive, they are forgiven. If you withhold, they are withheld. This is called the divine passive tense. You and I are called to bear witness to, to herald, and to mediate perhaps God's forgiveness. But it still remains something God does, something that Jesus does. And this is one of the things that you and I should be doing as we breathe out. We should be going out and letting the world know that in Christ they are forgiven. In Christ they can receive forgiveness. In Christ they can receive salvation. And there's a, another edge to this, another side to this. Outside of Christ there isn't salvation. Outside of Christ there is no life. But the church should be the ones who embody in word and in deed the forgiveness available because of the work of Christ. Now as a pastor, one of the most profound kind of responsibilities I have sometimes is I'll be talking to someone and they'll be sharing with me. Maybe they're confessing something. Maybe they're getting something off their chest that they've, they've done wrong, they feel ashamed of. And there comes a point in the conversation where there's a lull or a pause and I can kind of feel God's spirit speaking to me saying, okay, it's now. Here's where you go. And it's, it feels like it's my job to tell them, you're forgiven. God has forgiven you. And it strikes me sometimes as I say that, like, how arrogant of myself to think that I can speak on behalf of God. Like, look, I've got the keys to this, and if I decide that you're forgiven and I say that you're forgiven, you should take that to the bank. Like, what if God is in heaven going like, no, 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 not that guy. I don't know what you're talking about, but oh, not that person. Can I really trust that any time I say to someone in Christ, you are forgiven? It is true. It is real. It is binding. I think the story of Christ, his instructions to disciples, says so. There are times that Christians need to have a kind of a status check where it's like, you're not that special. You're not all that. 
But there are other times when Christians need to kind of be woken up and be told, you're more important than you think you are. God wants to and is planning on doing more with you than you think he wants to and is planning on doing. You are a recipient of God's very own spirit. You have been drawn into God's very own mission. And God wants to use you to bring about his reconciliation. As I think through 2019, as I think of what might come in 2020, I want to evaluate how much of my life was on mission. How much of my life was I aware of and focused on the fact that God has drawn me into service? Or how much of it was I just breathing in? And if you just breathe in, that's all you do, eventually you're going to find yourself in in some trouble. It's just not the way things are balanced out. You breathe in and you breathe out. A constant breathing in is going to get you to an unhealthy place. Or maybe you're just so distracted at all that you just forgot to breathe in or breathe out. Luckily, a little bit of it happens probably naturally, but perhaps more fruit can be had by being intentional about it, focusing on it, thinking it through. I always like to ask myself at the end of a year, whether I like the answer or not, who knows Christ or knows Christ better because of my life? And then I try really hard not to let myself off the hook. Like, sermons don't count, okay? Who, because of a relationship with them, who, because of text messages and meals and jokes, who, because of prayers and tears, knows Christ who didn't know Christ before? Or is healed and whole in a way that they weren't healed and whole before? What are those names? What are those stories? And if you don't have those names or their stories, I don't think it's shame that you should be feeling as much as a sense of potential. Because we should all be having those stories and those names. And even if you've never had one in your life, this next year, these next weeks and months, I'm telling you, if you lean into this, this is where it happens. In your own individual lives, with your family and your friends and your coworkers, God wants to move through you. In our life as a church, we don't exist just for ourselves. We don't exist just to breathe in and breathe in and breathe in and maybe do it a little bit fancier, a little bit more polished. We exist to breathe out. We exist to be a blessing. We exist to be sent out and join God on his mission. And my prayer is that as we're faithful to Christ, as we progressively learn how to welcome the Spirit into our lives, thank God for you. I thank God that he sent you. Thank God that Jesus thought it would be a good idea to give you the Spirit and say, go get them. And I pray that there would be even more people in our community and in our world who would say, thank God for that church. Thank God for that group of people. It was through them that I received God's love. It was 
through them that I was able to come to faith in Christ and receive eternal life. We breathe in and we breathe out. And then we encourage you to seek the many ways that God is desiring to move and to work through you. And then to lean in with us as a church as we head into another year seeking to continue to grow, expand, and reach out to others with the good news of Jesus.